In many ways, it's a tricky time to be teaching young people about civics and political processes. Even in our work here at Teaching Tolerance, we've heard from educators who, since the 2016 election, have just felt really unsure about how to talk about elections. Our country is so polarized. They don't want to be perceived in any way as partisan, and they certainly don't want to get in trouble with their administrations or students' families. Especially depending on the political climate in your community, these lessons and conversations can be sticky to navigate. Here's the thing, though. We are seeing hateful perspectives and ideologies travel from obscure, random places on the internet to mainstream media and political agendas. And to be frank, we're seeing dangerous ideas and conspiracy theories from the extreme, far right, become normalized. Now, I want to be clear. This is not about partisanship. This is about hateful ideas articulated by fringe groups who have found their way into the mainstream. And for the educators who are listening, you should know that people with hateful agendas have become very good at manipulating not only media, but also impressionable young minds. And that's why we're talking about it today on The Mind Online. I'm your host, Monita Bell, and I want to thank you for joining me today. This podcast comes from Teaching Tolerance, a project of the Southern Poverty Law Center. In each episode of The Mind Online, we'll explore an aspect of the digital literacy world, what educators and students alike need to know, and how educators can guide students to be safe, informed digital citizens. In episode three, Did You Google It? Sophia Noble, Heidi Byrick, and I talked about the ways in which mainstream search engines perpetuate hate by allowing it to rise to the top of online searches, and hateful actors have taken advantage of this. Today, Will Summer and Melissa Ryan join me to talk about how hateful ideologies make their way from the fringes of the internet into the mainstream. On one hand, it's happening very quickly and things just don't look good. Will Summer, a tech reporter for the Daily Beast and creator of the Right Richter newsletter, breaks down how this dissemination is happening. On the other hand, there aren't as many of these hateful actors as there seem to be. Melissa Ryan, author of the newsletter Control-Alt-Right-Delete, gives us some hope. So I would say that one thing that's important to understand about this movement is they have used online spaces to amplify themselves, to make them seem far larger than they actually are. Um, and while it's, it's sad that their ideas have become so mainstream, they are still very much in the minority. Um, and I think for, for educators, you know, it's it's such an opportunity to be a counterweight to any uh, anything that, that young people may be experiencing online. It's it's such a, a wonderful opportunity to be sort of on the front lines of defense. And I, I think it's overwhelming. But at the end of the day, there are way more of us than there are of them. But first, Will Summer explains how in the last couple of years, the fringes of right wing media have, quote, gone into hyperdrive. I'm uh, Will Summer. I'm a tech reporter with The Daily Beast. And uh, for the past two years, I've been writing the Right Richter newsletter on uh, right-wing internet and media. So uh, in this episode, we're definitely focusing on the ways that the information we receive gets manipulated by people and groups with political agendas. And um, as you were just saying, you know, as someone who follows this topic very closely, can you just kind of lay out the landscape for our audience? Like, what's happening? 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, really, uh, I would say since uh, Donald Trump started running for president, uh, I would say the this conservative Internet and media and the various conspiracy theories uh, have really sort of gone into hyperdrive. And so there's a, there's really a lot going on. I mean, it, it, I think that that landscape has become um, it's kind of been overturned. A, a, a lot of the otherwise establishment groups, I, I think, have really been shaken up. And uh, it, it's really the Wild West out there right now. If you could, would you just kind of distinguish between. Well, some people might be concerned that digging into this topic and exploring with their students might get them into partisan water. So when we talk about, you know, right wing and conservative conservative versus left wing, can you just really lay out that we're not talking about mainstream right wing, I don't know, actors? Absolutely. Um, I I think this is a very critical issue, and I think it's one of the thornier ones uh, in this space. I mean, you're not even talking really about, uh, say, Fox News or, you know, the National Review or something like that. I mean, we're talking about like like a lot of the the kind of crazier conspiracy theories and um, is stuff that's coming like from blogs, from anonymous Internet forums. Uh, stuff like that. And nevertheless, you know, it, it can be a very tricky issue because uh, you see the president himself, of course, is maybe the world's most prominent uh, conspiracy theorist. So, you know, I it, I think really the key is stressing to people uh, that, uh, you, you know, and stressing to students uh, tools about like, critical thinking and being able to distinguish between what is, say, uh, in a newspaper or a magazine or even on cable news uh, versus something that is an anonymous post on an internet forum. Right. Um, but to a point you just made, um, a lot of this stuff isn't fringe anymore. It, it's not buried in some obscure forum. We we're seeing conspiracy theories from, say, Reddit threads or 4chan actually appearing in the mainstream. Exactly. I mean, I mean, we've seen the president, uh, you know, claim uh, cite conspiracy theories from Infowars, uh, claiming that three million illegal votes were cast in 2016, for example. So, I mean, really, this is something that uh, I think has become impossible to ignore. Uh, you know, it, it wants things that were really on the fringe of the Internet or the Republican Party uh, have, have now really started to take sec- uh, center stage in our country and uh, affect public policy. So if you could just maybe lay out some more detail for us. What does that path look like between, say, a conspiracy theory that gets started in 4chan or 8chan and then how it makes its way into mainstream media? Can you just maybe provide a good example of how that might happen? Absolutely. Sure. So, for example, the uh, the Seth Rich conspiracy theory about the murder of a Democratic National Committee staffer, Seth Rich. So the idea that he was murdered by Hillary Clinton, I mean, it is absurd, but it, it, I think it provides a good example of how this ecosystem works. So initially, this idea starts bubbling up uh, on, you know, various uh, fake news sites and Internet forums like Reddit or 4chan. And then from there, it goes on to the blogs and the sites that are sort of feeders for the mainstream right wing media. So these would be sites like Infowars or the Gateway Pundit. And then from there, those are sort of the proving grounds. Uh, And then if if something catches on there, then it can end up, uh, you know, making it onto something like Fox News. I mean, in the case of we saw Newt Gingrich talking about Seth Rich's murder, stuff like that. And and Sean Hannity, of course. So there are sort of different stages. And then eventually it makes its way up to the president sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And um, I know one, I guess, kind of a similar path that you've been talking about recently, and that's really relevant to current events is with the the migrant caravan coming from Central America. 
That's absolutely right. I mean, that was something that uh, the idea of this caravan uh, as sort of a like an onslaught of invaders uh, is something that was floating around Twitter uh, with pro-Trump Twitter users uh, that was floating around various, uh, you know, marginal sites. Uh, and and it really started to pick up after it was embraced by, uh, you know, members of the Republican Party, notably uh, Representative Matt Gates from Florida tweeted, uh, you know, maybe George Soros is behind this. And, you know, when a conspiracy theory like that can get some sort of Republican pickup, that's really when it starts going. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so we also want, um, you know, the educators who are going to be listening to know, you know, what are the ide- ideologies out there that their young people might be vulnerable to? So what kinds of ideologies are we seeing brought into the mainstream because of this manipulation of the media? Yeah, I mean, I mean this is something that, uh, you know, a, a lot of extremist groups, I think, are very aware of. Uh, you know, they're actively trying to recruit young people, especially young men. Um, you know, it, it, we've seen uh, white supremacist groups try to recruit young people through th- the kind of things you would expect them to be on, sort of uh, edgy forums like 4chan, uh, through video game chat rooms, stuff like that. And and, and so these sort of ideologies, whether they be white supremacist or, uh, you know, various uh, conspiracy theories or sort of a mixture of all of those, uh, you know, they're very active and, and very consciously, I think, uh, trying to recruit young people on the Internet. Yeah. And so, yeah, speaking of these spaces that these, you know, dangerous actors are using to recruit people, um, I know you've written recently about Instagram. And I think a lot of us think of Instagram as maybe a safer or more neutral space, (laughs) right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think internet extremists have figured out how to sort of infiltrate uh, just about any social network there is. Uh, and, and so in the case of Instagram, uh, I, I think people don't think of it, as you mentioned, as a particularly political place. Uh, you know, it's kind of a, a place to sh- share vacation pictures and stuff like that. Uh, right. But in practice, it's often worked out to be that because uh, it's a site that doesn't really seem prepared for these extremist groups, that was a, a place they, they flourished after being banned from sites like Facebook or Twitter. Right, right. Um, even though Instagram is owned by Facebook, which I know might confuse some people. Yeah, exactly. So this, I I know you were saying um, earlier that um, after the 2016 election, we saw this like explosion of more, you know, radical and hateful content. But is the, is media manipulation a new phenomenon? Like how, how current, how is the current climate different? Um, And is it more dangerous than before? Sure, I, I would say the big difference here is the uh, is the internet, which, which you know makes it possible for people to uh, to link up in ways that uh, and, and sort of find people who can reinforce their beliefs. Uh, it makes it possible for these kind of fake news things to spread a lot faster. Right. Yeah. And then once again, particularly for young people, um, as these more maybe these subtler ways of manipulation are easier to master or to use. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So. Teachers often feel ill-equipped to help their students navigate, you know, the vast online information ecosystem. There's a lot. Um, And as you pointed out, it's a place where bad information and conspiracy theories can masquerade as truth. So just, you know, considering your expertise and what you've learned in your work, what do you think teachers need to know and what should they be telling their students? You know, I, it, I, I think it's something that uh, can be very difficult to address because you don't want to come off as seeming partisan. Uh, I, I really think the, the thing to make students aware of is the ability to distinguish 
uh, between different sources of information and credibility and sort of thinking about various steps. Uh, you know, I, I think stressing to them that, you know, at a newspaper, for example, uh, they're not just making things up, you know, that, that that would be a very serious issue if a reporter was, whereas online, uh, you know, an anonymous person can just post anything and get away with it. And so I think, and also stressing, I think having a diverse media diet, uh, so you're getting exposed to different viewpoints, I think is key. Mm-hmm. And um, I would say on the fact-checking front, you're a journalist, and so obviously uh, fact-checking is very important in your line of work. And uh, it's essential to maintain your credibility. Can you, well, on another episode of this podcast, we have talked about the the things that fact checkers do really well that most of us (laughs) don't. So if you think to what, what are some of the common things you do, the, some of the practices that you engage in when you're working on a story or you're doing your research? What, are you, what do you think are some of the, the key things that young people might be able to employ from what you do? Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think trying to look for primary source documents, for example, or considering what a story is based on. So, you know, certainly uh, it, when a story comes out, even in the, in the media, uh, in the mainstream media that is based on a lot of anonymous sources, for example, you have to consider, uh, you know, how credible is this uh, versus something that can be based on, uh, you know, court records or police documents. I mean, uh, it's something that happens a lot is I'll write a story based on government documents and they'll and someone will say it's fake news. And, you know, I mean, that that's something that's clearly, uh, you know, there, there's a hard record of it. Uh, it, it and so I, I think that's a key thing for people to consider is, is, is what the evidence uh, that goes into a story is. Right. Um, Yeah. And so you've been mentioning some key things here. Just when it comes to media literacy and digital literacy, you talked earlier about critical thinking and now, uh, you know, looking at hard evidence that, you know, that can't be refuted, at least not reasonably so. (laughs) So thank you for that. Can you recommend any resources that teachers might be able to use to just help them learn about the phenomena that you've been describing and that you're uncovering in your work? Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think there's, you know, it's a very fast moving space. Um, you know, I, I think if you wanted to understand the uh, the world of sort of online trolling and how that blends into the, the Internet right wing, uh, Angela Nagel's book, uh, Kill All Normies, I think is a great example. Um, David Nywert's book, uh, which escapes me right now, the name of it, uh, on the alt right, I I think are are all are all good examples. I mean, um, but really a lot of it uh, is I think following news coverage uh, at sites like the Daily Beast, uh, my newsletter, uh, various people. Uh, I think because it is such a fast moving space. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, can you think of anything else that you feel is important for educators to know that they may not be thinking about in this realm? Uh, No, I think that's about it for me. Okay, excellent. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Will. Okay, thank you. That was Will Summer, a tech reporter for The Daily Beast and writer of the newsletter The Right Richter. Next, Melissa Ryan has a lot to say about the normalization of far-right ideologies in the media, too. But she also reminds us that the haters use digital media to make their movements seem larger than they really are. Did you know that Teaching Tolerance has other podcasts? We've got Teaching Hard History, which builds on our framework, Teaching Hard History, American Slavery. Listen as our host, history professor Hassan Kwame Jeffries, brings us the lessons we should have learned in school through the voices of leading scholars and educators. 
It's good advice for teachers and good information for everybody. We've also got Queer America, hosted by professors Lila Roop and John D'Amelio. Joined by scholars and educators, they take us on a journey that spans from Harlem to the frontier West, revealing stories of LGBTQ life that belong in our consciousness and in our classrooms. Find both podcasts at tolerance.org podcasts and use them to help you build a more robust and inclusive curriculum. I'm Hassan Kwame Jeffries, host of the Teaching Hard History podcast. Did you know that you can earn a certificate for one hour of professional development just by listening to this episode of The Mind Online? It's a special opportunity for educators from Learning for Justice. Go to learningforjustice.org slash podcast PD, PD for professional development. That's podcast PD, all one word. You can also find a link in the show notes. Once you're there, enter the unique code word for this episode, credibility, all lowercase. And now, here's Manita Bell's conversation with Melissa Ryan. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I know you're very busy doing very important work, so I I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So uh, will you just introduce yourself and tell us a little about what you do? Sure. Uh, Well, my name is Melissa Ryan. Uh, I write a weekly newsletter, Control-Alt-Write-Delete, which covers all things uh, online hate and online toxicity. Uh, And I got into the work uh, as a a digital political strategist. Uh, Can you talk more about what actually got you into doing this work? So you talked about the advocacy that you had been doing. So what led you into this path of tracking you know, the, the, the hateful practices of the so-called alt-right online. Sure. So a lot of the work in digital strategy is you're spending a lot of time in digital communities and you're trying to find who your people are and figure out the best ways to mobilize them. And what I saw in 2016 uh, just didn't look like what I expected uh, online activity to look in a presidential year. Uh, Nothing that the left was doing was popping or getting people excited. And then everything that the right was doing, they were completely dominating social media. They were dominating Facebook and Twitter. And I had read um, a couple of articles about this burgeoning so-called online alt-right movement. Um, But it really hit home for me in October of 2016 uh, when I found myself at the center of uh, some pretty vicious online attacks uh, from an innocuous tweet that I made during one of the presidential debates. And initially, the response was really quite good. It it was retweeted 12,000 times, and it was liked over 20,000 times. Uh, But the backlash to that was swift and very intense. And what I ended up with was days and days of death threats and attacks and insults. Uh, they On my Twitter account, they found my Facebook, they found my spouse's social media. Uh, they tweeted at the consulting firm where I worked. They found my personal email. And I was both, you know, it was scary, but the organizer in me was like, oh, this is really well organized. I want to understand where this comes from. Um, oh, so- wow. That's <laughs> very... Uh- <laughs> 
focused of you. <laughs> yeah, so I started tracing back and I found the tweet on a now defunct uh, white supremacist website where they were saying, come after this person. And I found mm. the tweet on the Donald subreddit and I just started to see all these nodes of where some of these attacks and activity was coming from. So I started making notes on it and it was like, oh no, this is this is now. This is this is what the internet is. This is what's dominating the internet and I need to understand it to you know do my job uh, to, to keep working in advocacy. Uh, so I started this newsletter uh, thinking that, you know, a couple hundred of my friends and colleagues might be interested in learning along with me. Uh, it forced me to do some writing. It gave me a deadline. And much to my shock, it, it's grown. Um, so within a month, we had about a thousand readers. Um, and now we're coming up on two years at the end of November and we have 15,000 readers. And it's, oh, wow. it's activists, it's colleagues, but it's also folks who work in the tech industry. It's folks in media. Um, it's folks in academia. And just because it hits so many different industries. Uh, so two years later, we're, we're, we're going strong. Mm. And um, I would love for you to just clarify something for folks who may be listening. And, you know, I think at this point, most people have heard the term alt-right. Yeah. But, you know, I think there may, just in case there are still some folks who don't understand when we use that term, how that's distinguished from the right. Yeah. So can you just touch on that a bit? Well, it's actually harder and harder. Um, so I think the so-called alt-right, as we understood them two years ago, uh, were this radical white supremacist movement who were uh, using the Internet to sort of infect the mainstream right. Um, but two years later, you know, post Charlottesville, when we've got a president that refuses to uh, denounce white supremacy, that refuses to call for unity in, in, in times of national balance, I actually think it's much harder to think of them as a sub movement um, and more that the uh, uh, white supremacist ideas of the alt right have become the ideas of the right at large. Mm, OK, yeah, uh, I think this is getting into something that I discussed with uh, Matthew Johnson, who uh, works with an organization called Media Smarts mm -hmm. in Canada. And um, we, we talked a lot about the, you know, pretty much how these fringe ideologies and opinions are increasingly becoming more mainstream and acceptable. Um, I, I did want people to understand that when we say, when we talk about the so-called all right, we don't necessarily mean the right politically, but, uh, but but we do see the kind of acceptable nature of some of these ideas. And I think what you'll probably touch on, <laughs> I don't want to presume, but what we'll touch on is that, you know, how some of these ideas get taken, say, from Reddit threads. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then we hear them come out of politicians' mouths. Yeah, the, the, the spread and the radicalization has been really quite shocking. Um, there have yeah. been a, a couple of good studies. Um, Jonathan Morgan at New Knowledge uh, AI has written a lot about um, the radicalization just using comments from Trump's Facebook page over the course of 2016. Um, there's also a study of Reddit comments uh, from the University of Amsterdam, which I, I believe it's like over three million comments um, mm -hmm. and just shown that the language is, you know, that all these disparate far right groups and, and even more mainstream right groups, uh, the language that they're using has become more consistent. Um, and the ideas, you know, it's it's not uh, as as decentralized or as disparate as I think we would have understood it even a year ago. Yeah. So you're, right now you're already sharing some things you've learned that, that we, we see the, I guess I'd say normalization. Normalization of some of these ideas, word, yeah. Yeah, in our discourse. Can you tell us a little more about what you've learned in the course of doing this work? 
I mean, I think the most interesting thing to me is the feedback loop between the Trump administration and these disparate online communities. Um, I think there is a, a sense out there that uh, they're getting their marching orders from Trump, and that's not necessarily always the case. Uh, you have the case of, of uh, memes that make their way from Reddit or 4chan to President Trump's Twitter feed. Uh, you recently had that with a slogan that he started using, jobs, not mobs. And the New York Times a couple of days ago was able to trace that um, all the way how it got up. And then, you know, the, the president has, um, you know, a staffer. He has Dan Scavino, whose job is to basically, uh, from the White House, liaise with these online communities. So I think there's a lot of constant communication. Mm. And I don't necessarily necessarily think it's one leading the other i think the way that we would traditionally think of of uh you know far-right communications is they it's top down and they get their marching orders and that's really not what's happening anymore yeah so you're saying it's more of like a back and forth yeah it's it's a back and forth they're they're feeding off one another and frankly i think they're feeding off one another's worst instincts um it's been really shocking when you think about uh, how much of it has creeped into campaign rhetoric um, I was mm. listening to some, you know, I live in D.C., but we get Virginia local radio and, you know, it was ads for Corey Stewart yesterday. And I was sort of I don't remember the specifics, but I remember being shocked that it made it on the air. And then, of mm. course, there's mm-hmm. the the Trump ad that that CNN and NBC and even Fox Network actually have refused to air and pull down. Um, so it's oh, just wow. amazing that the kind of the kind of language that you saw that was common on Internet message boards a couple of years, it's now creeped into our political mainstream discourse uh, in a way that's really sh- it should be shocking. But we're so used to this creep of radicalization uh, that it's sort of ingrained in all of us, even if we disagree with those views strongly. Well, I'd love for you to talk about that a little more. So <laughs> I was about to ask you a question. Why should we be concerned about these trends? Uh, you're definitely giving us that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, can you just maybe break down a little bit more, for, especially for educators who, you know, are, are the main folks who are going to be listening to this podcast? Sure. What What are some key things we really should be concerned about and paying attention to along these lines? Yeah, I mean, words have power. Um, words have power and uh, the effect of finding yourself in, if, I think for educators in particular, thinking about their students who might find themselves having access and ingrained in these online communities. Uh, you look at so many of these recent incidents of violence, uh, whether it was the pipe bomb or the synagogue shooter, mm, yeah. um, and they were radicalized online. And you can go back and you can see their, their social media profiles and you can see and that that started with words and it's it's a progression. And I think for educators in particular, um, I know a couple of the teachers unions have done a lot of work on the, the Trump effect um, in terms of uh, what it is for uh, students who are bullied. But I think there's also a, a great concern about, you know, particularly teenagers, particularly teenage young men of, of being radicalized online by these spaces. I think it's really important what you talked about in terms of, you know, how it starts with words mm-hmm. and and there's a progression. Um, after the, the shooting in Pittsburgh, um, we shared a resource from the Anti-Defamation League, the, the Pyramid of Hate. Are you familiar with this pyramid? A, a little bit, but I, I wouldn't feel comfortable speaking to it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to talk much about it, but it, it definitely starts at the bottom with words yep. and how, you know, those words can then lead to discrimination and how discrimination like you know it kind of goes on up to violent acts Mm -hmm. and you know I I think that your point is well taken that um, 
we have to be concerned about these words because those words can transform into action. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really important for educators. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's it's interesting when we're talking about some of these young men and, and Internet like 4chan and Reddit and they'll they'll say, oh, I'm just joking or I'm just trolling or it's mm. just ironic. And and it's sort of I, I think they feel like it gives them an out. And I think that's another thing we really have to push back on. I'm like, no, that's that's not acceptable. Um, if you're joking using racist language, you're, you're still you know, that's an act of racism. Um, and I, I think we've we've allowed too much of a pass there. You know what, since you just waded into that, um, I have a follow up. So, you know, sure. I, I would say definitely within the last couple of years, because of this, you know, normalization of hateful rhetoric that you were talking about, mm-hmm. um, I think we've been having, I mean, and you can see what you think, because I think you would have been exposed to this uh, and thinking more about it in your work. But this, these increasing discussions about the First Amendment mm-hmm. and the right to free speech. Um, so when we have, say, educators who may be encountering young people who are using offensive language and in the, you know, it's just a joke yeah. <laughs> realm of things, um, do you have any advice? And I realize you're not an educator, but, you know, just noting the work that you do, do you have any advice for how they can respond to that or how they should respond to that? You know, I think we're not talking enough about the right to be safe and the right Mm. to be free from harm. Um, And I, you know, I I think it's like a version of fire in a crowded theater. Um, Your free speech is not more important than someone else's safety or life. Um, For Mm -hmm. me, that's that's a pretty clear line. Um, it's interesting. I do, you know, I now produce the newsletter with Hope Not Hate, an organization in the UK. And the researchers and I are always talking back and forth about the nuances um, that, in, you know, just sort of the, the primacy of free speech in America versus other countries where that's not necessarily the case. It's one of many values. And I worry, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm obviously pro-speech. I'm, I'm anti-censorship. Uh, but I do think it's important to acknowledge that your free speech should not be more important than someone's life. Yeah. So what if it is just a joke? What if someone's life is not in danger? What then? Well, again, I think that's where you start to, you know, lead down that radicalization path. And it's really important right. to realize the, the power, the potential power of that joke. And I think for educators, mm-hmm. it's, it's very important to be able to say, you know, that's not appropriate. That's, that's not the right language. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm glad you mentioned Hope Not Hate, because I wanted to ask about your work with them. Can you talk about uh, who they are and what they do and how you're working with them? Sure. So Hope Not Hate is one of the largest uh, anti-racism organizations in the UK. Um, and they do a combination of, of education and campaign work, but also just really amazing research. Um, and they are, uh, we started having conversations a while ago. They were readers of the newsletter. I was, I was big fans of their work. Um, so bringing the, working with them um, allows us to just take the newsletter to completely new levels because we're able to, in addition to analysis and links, we're able to uh, debut a lot of original research uh, that's done mm. by the Hope Not Hate team. So it's just been a, a really great partnership. We're wrapping up our first year. Um, I, I think the world of them, I love bringing their work to American audiences. Um, and especially since, you know, this, these far right movements are, they're organized internationally. Uh, you know, right. they, they call mm-hmm. themselves nationalists, but they're organized as an international movement. Um, and I find that's something that's been missing from the left quite a bit. So just to have an opportunity to start to make those transatlantic connections has been very rewarding for me. 
Yeah, and um, can you just tell us a little bit about the the latest research they've done? You know, we had one on in Sunday about uh, online safe spaces that some of the far right um, uh, perpetrators of violence in the U.S. have been. Uh, we did a great series of um, different alt right movements around the world, including Japan, um, including um, far right nationalists in India. Um, and mm. then my favorite one that we've done this year uh, is how um, uh, hating and dating online, uh, how the people in the so called alt right movement find love. Oh, wow. And. <laughs> um... <laughs> You know, that that's a whole nother podcast episode. <laughs> the world's worst dating websites. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I definitely think, um, you know, especially for young people, you, you mentioned a few minutes ago about how um, young men in particular uh, may be vulnerable to this radicalization. Yeah. And, and, and we see the, you know, kind of the, the partners who stand alongside them and support it even if they're not leading it. And so uh, maybe for another day, I think that would be very interesting to, you know, see the educational implications of uh, that kind of research Mm -hmm. um, for sure. Okay, thank you for that. So our listeners may feel overwhelmed. I mean, I'm overwhelmed just (laughs) by what you're talking about and, you know, and from the work that we've been doing here at the Southern Poverty Law Center and in teaching tolerance as well, but, you know, there, there's so much out there and it's spreading so far, as you said, we're not talking about just an American thing. We're talking about international, you know, movements mm-hmm. that are rooted in hate. Yep. And so you know, educators and all of us really may feel overwhelmed by the task of having to sort out reliable from unreliable information. And then, you know, let alone to have to help students do it. Do you have any advice for them? So I would say that one thing that's important to understand about this movement is they have used online spaces to amplify themselves to make them seem far larger than they actually are. Um, and while it's it's sad that their ideas have become so mainstream, they are still very much in the minority. Um, and I think for for educators, you know, it's it's such an opportunity to be a counterweight to to any uh, anything that that young people may be experiencing online. Um, it's it's such a, a wonderful opportunity to be sort of on the front lines of defense. Um, and I, I think it's overwhelming. But at the end of the day, there are way more of us than there are of them. You know what? Yes, I, I think that's really an important note to hang on to right mm-hmm. um i think it was also matthew johnson who talked about you know the the loudest 10 percent. like yep. those are the voices you hear but but it's 10 percent. yep yeah. and we just know so much of this conversation is being driven by bots and bot networks which are obviously yeah. controlled by a human but i mean for me it was very sobering when i realized oh it's not fifty thousand men coming after me on twitter it's you know 20 very bored guys with a botnet Mm-hmm. You know, and that just puts it in perspective. It's like, oh, well, it's it's not as overwhelming. Everything isn't as horrible. Um, there's still a lot of horrible and there's still a lot of work to do. But I, I would say that we outnumber them vastly and greatly. Yeah. And um, I'm glad you just returned to your your example of having experienced like extreme trolling and uh, pro- trolling probably isn't even necessarily the word for that. Yeah. Um, I, I'm really sorry to hear about that. But we we know increasingly people who you know, are opinionated and vocal about certain issues, uh, experience that kind of thing. Um, And for young people who may go through that, and we know young people are using their voices too to speak out against hate. 
mm-hmm. and uh, you know just to just to make themselves heard, which is um, a beautiful thing about technology these these days and how young people can use them. Do you have any advice for young people who you know may experience or who have experienced the kind of thing that you did? You know, it's interesting. Um, some of my work that I did this year was around misinformation and conspiracies that spread around the Parkland student survivors, um, mm, which was really example. awful on its face. I mean, there was a moment when one of the students who was still a minor was asked to confirm on live television that she was an actual victim and not a crisis actor. Right. Um, and mm. it was just awful knowing, especially seeing once they spoke out was like, oh, no, people are going to, you know, they're going to get come after in such a big way. But the amazing thing about these students is, you know, they've been on social media all their lives. They were very savvy. Um, And uh, just watching them push back in very effective ways and becoming very effective messengers for their movement. Now they're doing very effective messaging for getting out the vote. Um, So usually when I talk to teenagers, I'm not giving advice so much as asking them for advice um, and observing (laughs) the way they use the internet because, you know, they've never lived without it. So they just experience it in a very different way than I do. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, especially, you know, what we saw in the wake of the, the Parkland shooting and the way young people came out. Uh, sometimes it was, I, I think I read in it, it was an interview with, it might've been Emma Gonzalez's mm-hmm. mother, I think, who was talking about, you know, I have to remember sometimes that she's still a child, even though she seems so, you know, mature and uh, that she's handling things so well that, you know, she still needed to be taken care of in ways as a child. But uh, that's not to diminish the power of these young people mm-hmm. and uh, th- and their leadership, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've been just continually inspired and impressed by, by young people over the past couple of years. They give me a lot of hope. Me too. And, you know, sometimes, <laughs> like I was saying before, like all of this can seem so overwhelming, especially the rate at which we're seeing hateful ideas spread. But um, young people today are doing what young people have always done. And, and that's uh, stand up when change needed to be made. And we're definitely seeing that happen today. And that, again, they're using the, the, the technological tools at their disposal yep. to advance their messages. Yeah, yeah, they are fluent in social media. <laughs> mm-hmm. So of course, you talked about your work with Hope Not Hate. Do you have any other recommendations for resources or, uh, you know, just sources for information for educators who want to, you know, learn more about how uh, these kinds of things are spreading and, you know, they just want to increase their capacity and their knowledge base? Uh, sure. Well, first of all, I would encourage everyone to subscribe to my newsletter, controlaltrightdelete.com. Uh, had, to, had to get in my plug first. Um, I would oh, also yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would also say the National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers have both done a lot of work um, around what they call the Trump effect. Um, and there's a, I believe there's a woman at the um, Aspen Institute that does some work with AFT that's done some work on this as well. And then, you know, I think there are um, just loads of groups who, who are covering this more. I think for uh, dealing with issues of online harassment in particular, which I know a lot of students and teens are, uh, Feminist Frequency is great for helping understand sort of how to lock yourself down digitally. Um, and then, um, you know, there's just a lot of um, great reporting that's being done um, on online radicalization in general. I think BuzzFeed does uh, the best job consistently. Um, I'm also a, a big fan of The Verge um, for just starting to understand this stuff and put it into context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and for our listeners who may not know, 
Teaching Tolerance also has a report called the Trump Effect. Um, we have, uh, it's actually two reports, one before the election and then one after to see if that, you know, how things may have changed post-election. So that's something to look out for on our website, tolerance.org. Well, I will be looking at that right after this podcast. Oh, yeah, definitely. Check it out. Check it out. Um, well, Melissa, thank you so much for your time. I think you have shared here, um, well, some very sobering, troubling information. But, you know, it, th- these are things we need to know, especially as we um, as we go out and work with young people and work with them. I won't even say help them necessarily in some ways, but, you know, work with them as we all combat the, the tide of hate that is kind of proliferating in digital spaces. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. That was Melissa Ryan, creator of the weekly newsletter, Control-Alt-Right-Delete. For help with addressing the messages of the alt-right and recognizing signs of vulnerability in your students, check out the Teaching Tolerance magazine article, What is the Alt-Right?, as well as its accompanying toolkit and on-demand webinar. It's all free at tolerance.org alt-right. Thank you for taking the time to join me for this episode of The Mind Online a podcast of Teaching Tolerance, which is a project of the Southern Poverty Law Center. I'm your host, Manita Bell, Senior Editor for Teaching Tolerance. This podcast was inspired by Teaching Tolerance's digital literacy framework, which offers seven key areas in which students need support developing digital and civic literacy skills, and features lessons for kindergarten through 12th grade classrooms. Each lesson is designed in a way that can be used by educators with little to no technology in their classrooms. The digital literacy framework and all its related resources, including a series of student-friendly videos, a professional development webinar, and a PD module, can be found online at tolerance.org diglit. That's tolerance.org D-I-G-L-I-T. This episode was produced by Jasmine Lopez with help from Rachel London. Our production supervisor is Kate Schuster. Adrian Vanderbach assisted with the writing and music for The Mind Online comes courtesy of John Bartman. If you like what you've heard, rate, review, and subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. <laughs>